Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. Today's show is not only just a special show, it was going to be highly interesting because I was looking, doing my due diligence, and I'm looking at this man's resume, and I'm looking at like all the different things he's had an opportunity to done in the short period of time he's been on this planet. And not only is it amazing, but I think the best way to summarize it would be to get him a t-shirt that says, hey, Silicon Valley, I'm your wet dream. Literally, that's who this guy is, right? So (laughs) I'm going to introduce him as the founder boss, because again, literally one out of three positions he's held, he's been a founder. I mean, he was a founder of, co-founder of Redfin. He actually worked on some R stuff with Amazon, like with the right-hand man of Jeff Bezos. And obviously he's now the founder of this cool, but interesting software hardware platform. So I want you to kind of tell us a little bit more about who you are. We're going to dive into where you are right now. We're going to dive into everything. It's going to be a pretty decent, solid episode. So without further ado, the floor is yours, David. Tell the audience a little bit more about you. Hey, thank you for, for having me here. I'm excited. I, I, uh, I feel humbled by the introduction, if, if anything. You know, I think like a lot of people, you know, you, you live your life not really thinking about other people, or I guess maybe you do think about other people's perspectives, but just one foot after, one step after the other, one one foot, one foot. And so uh, to have somebody else kind of take a look at your career and your life and, and come up with their own conclusions is is, a, is kind of a unique perspective. Um, I guess I could start with the beginning, which is I, I grew up in a little town in Oregon. Um, I... Uh, I would call it something of a, a, a redneck town in, in Grants Pass, Oregon. I actually grew up in a suburb of Grants Pass. If you know Grants Pass, it was the big town. It had 25, 30,000 people. And I grew up in a town five miles out called Merlin that had wow. 300 people and uh, had one stoplight. You know, it was it was that kind of a town. And, uh, you know, it, it was a, a great upbringing. Both my folks are physicians and uh I got exposed to technology really early, which became this like eye-opening moment. I was I was six years old, and my mom bought our first computer, and I remember it was a big deal. She brought it home, and I felt just in, engaged and enthralled in a way that I had never done uh, in my life. Again, a young kid, but like I just I remember this feeling of just this is what I want to be doing, and I wrote a letter at the age of six to the head of admissions at Massachusetts Institute of Technology at the, and I said, that's where I want to go. You guys do technology. I want to be in technology. That's going to be the coolest stuff ever. And as you, as you observed, I became a, a founder boss in my career. And that happened very markedly because Massachusetts Institute of Technology, while they did respond to me when I was six and send me a care package, they also responded to me when I was 18, letting me know that I was not admitted for <laughs> admission to their school, and I had to go find somewhere else to go to school. And I ended up going to Stanford, which, you know, as a backup is, wow, I mean, right, like, who gets to say that? Yeah. And uh, I was actually really bummed at the time. And that's such a that's such a crappy thing to say, but I really was. I really wanted to go to MIT. But then Stanford became... This just amazing foundation for the rest of my career. It's 
It brought me down to California, which is where I live now. It brought me into this world of technology entrepreneurship, not just technology, but technology in its ability to change the world around us. It, uh, it was so eye opening. I, I loved everything about entrepreneurship when I went down there. In fact, I remember again, coming from a little town, I just really didn't understand what business meant. And so in that first year, I remember it was when the dot-com was blowing up. And, and for those of your listeners who are old like me, uh, the people that are actually watching will see I don't have any hair, right? As an indicator of my age here, and what I do have is all gray. And, uh, and so I went to Netscape, which was kind of the big hot company at the time. Jesus, yeah. And uh, I wasn't an employee. Hmm. I just wanted to figure out what they did at Netscape. And so I like drove there and I would park in the employee parking lot and I would tailgate. And for those of you that have never worked at a corporate place that has key card access, tailgating is when somebody just looks like they know what they're doing and they walk into a secure door after you. And so I would literally tailgate employees into Netscape and just walk around the halls and like look at what people were doing to try to figure out what was this thing? How did Netscape as a, as a browser and as the gateway to the internet become? What did the people that worked there do? What was their day like? And, um, and I just, just roamed to the halls. I looked, poked my head into conference rooms, uh, looked into people's offices, listened in on hallway conversations. And that was my, honestly, my very first introduction to Silicon Valley. And as you said, since then, it's been, that's been my career. I, uh, I was at Amazon. I started, uh, the AI and research team there. We can talk about that for a bunch of time. That was an amazing experience. I started Redfin with a bunch, a, a couple of friends. Um, as a moonlighting project that we did for almost a year. And then um, <clears throat> started a company called Rich Relevance, which we just sold a little while ago. And then about five years ago, I, I started Deep Sentinel, which is my current company. And as a security company that uses AI to protect uh, people in their homes and protect people in their businesses. I mean, again, I think you're you're so modest in what you're saying. This man, he said he moonlighted and created Redfin. Now, anyone that's, that's a real estate listener, and we had a, a whole real estate month last year on this particular podcast. <laughs> so every real estate person essentially knows what Redfin is, but he moonlighted and created it, right? Not only did you moonlight and create that, but you were essentially doing like ads. And I just want to talk about the ads for a little bit as well, too, as we sure. progress with this story. But, you know, going back to what you said earlier on about you gave up MIT and you went to Stanford. Like, I didn't give up. They gave up on me. Well, well, yeah, yeah, right, right. But your major, I mean, you you studied robotics. Like, of all the damn things on the damn planet, again, you were in the middle of nowhere. Like, why did you get into robotics? How did you even know robotics was a thing for you to even dive into? Yeah, you know, um, I was, as, as a kid, I grew up in a, on five acres of land in, in Oregon. And so I would run around and like I had a BB gun and a dog and like just did a bunch of mechanical stuff, meaning like I would, I would build stuff in a tree fort. I would build uh, a, a conveyor that would like move things. My sister and I would, would kind of build the tree fort. We'd want to have some conveyor that would move things from one place to the other or a pulley system. And so I was really into mechanical stuff as a kid and, and robotics combined my passion for computers and uh and mechanical stuff together and then as i learned when i when i got into studying it at stanford i learned that that also added in artificial intelligence and data which ultimately actually became the the platform of my 
of my career, which is data and, and AI uh, machine learning. And, uh, and so robotics is, is one of these things. And it, it was in you know, the two, early 2000s, which is when I was studying there, it was really in its infancy. It was, it was not really known what could it do. The way that we all understood robotics at that time was an arm. Right. So like a, a, a mechanical arm that could pick things up and move them. And my uncle had bought me one of those when I was a little kid. And, and all it did was just you know, pick something up and move it. And I could play with that for hours and hours and hours and hours. I remember I used to the, the remote controls. You, you'd have two joysticks. And the, the thing that took me forever to figure out was how to open and close the hand. And you would twist one of the joysticks and it would open and close the hands. And, and I just. I thought that combination of movements and if you could control that with a computer, think of all the things you could do. And, and it, at the, again, at the time, the number one thing that people were doing was uh, manufacturing cars. It was on, on the, you know, manufacturing lots. And now, you know, you fast forward here, we have, we have robotics in our computers. We have robotics in the computers that are sitting in front of us. We have, the, if you use VR, that's using robotic sensors to be able to detect your orientation and where you're where you're looking in real time in order to to present the the, our, the VR world to you, uh, I, in Pleasanton right now, which is the town that I live in, there's a company that's doing a, a beta test that will deliver your groceries. This little like cooler on wheels will drive to your house and then it'll play a little musical tune and send you a text message and let you know that your groceries are sitting at the door. I mean, it's it's so amazing where it's gotten to, but that's kind of the the that vision of watching star trek and star wars as a kid was really what inspired me to to study robotics yeah i mean i'm just hearing you i mean you could still see like that twinkle in your <laughs> eye like you're like a seven-year-old kid just happy as hell talking about robotics so i mean that that's that's one of the things that probably led you to uh guess stumble across your next career step which was essentially amazon so i wanted you to talk mm -hmm. about like that research and development department because that's what you're talking about right you're talking about machine to machine learning talking about ai artificial intelligence about all these different things and then you're presented with this opportunity at amazon yeah, so I, I um I was work at the time I had just started a division of a company called Dutch Bros, um, which is a coffee company based in Grants Pass. They're they're now public. It's a, it's an awesome company. Um, so I had partnered with the founders there, and I was doing some tests on uh, their their website. I was running their website and e-commerce and technology, and we had found the these ads on the the internet that Google allowed you to advertise. And again, this is just like super obvious now, but go back if you can, especially for your younger listeners, I'm going to ask you to put on your dinosaur glasses, right? So pretend you're a dinosaur and you're seeing the world through my eyes. And it turns out very few people were advertising on Google at the time. Google was not even public yet. They had just launched their search engine and their, and their advertising products. Nobody was using it. They, 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 they weren't this massive behemoth that they are today. So there's your dinosaur goggles perspective. And I started selling coffee makers on, um, on Google, super high-end ones that, again, it, with the dinosaur lens on, it was really hard to find them back then, right? So if you were a coffee aficionado and you did not live in Los Angeles, Chicago, or New York, you could not buy a high-end coffee. You didn't have to fly somewhere or drive somewhere to get these high-end coffee makers. So I put them on Google and holy crap, uh, you know, within moments, I'm selling dozens of them a day. I, I, here I am, this like kid, just I happen to have access to supply of these things. Mm -hmm. I'm buying ads for 50 cents on Google 
people are paying 25 to 50 cents. I have to pay them to, for every click and people are buying one, one out of every two times they click on that ad. So I'm, I'm paying a total of $1 to sell someone a $500 coffee machine. Bam, ching, ching. I'm making 150 to 250 bucks every time. And uh, so I was fine, right? So I, I was making enough money that I was driving around in my little BMW all around Palo Alto, uh, hanging out with my girlfriend, not doing anything. And Amazon was doing interviews and I was bored. And so I went and I interviewed with Amazon and I was like, hey, you know, I'm Dave. I, I basically put my feet up on the table in the interview, like, Whoo! and, and they're like, whoa, that's, that's, that's a pretty aggressive attitude for a call. You know, a lot of the kids at these college uh, interviews, they're showing up in a suit. They're like you know, nervous in their chair. And here's this jerk who shows up, puts his feet on the table. It's like, yeah, tell me what you got. And, uh, and so <laughs> they were, they were kind of taken aback. I of course did okay on the technical part of the interview. And, I, and then I was interviewing with this guy named Neil Roseman, who was the head of consumer at the time at Amazon. And I said, yeah, so, you know, I don't really think I'm not interested in coming to Amazon because here's what I'm doing every day. And I, I, I buy these clicks for 50 cents. I sell them a coffee maker. I make a couple hundred bucks and I just make dough every day and I don't have to do anything. It's sweet. And Neil leans across the table and he goes, wait, wait. Walk me through that one more time. You you pay fifty cents for a click and you sell them a two hundred and fifty to five hundred dollar coffee maker half the time. I was like, yeah, all day, all day. And he and he just his eyes lit up, and that became the origins of a project at Amazon called Urabamba that became the first hundred million dollar a year run rate customer of uh, of Google. We taught at Amazon. We taught Google how to do what's called programmatic, which is computers mm -hmm. bidding uh, advertising. And uh, I ended up falling in love with the opportunity to take these things that I had learned at you know my little kind of scale and blow them up, turn them into a real platform at Amazon. And they wooed me and convinced me that I would be able to have a major impact on the world and it would have a major impact on me. And they, you know, frankly, they were right. I, I really look at my career as that decision being the foundation of, of everything I've done since then. And um, and I, I feel very blessed to have made that decision because I, I was pretty cocky, as you can tell at the time, yeah. and, and I almost didn't do it. Well, I mean, I mean, just telling your story, I mean, <laughs> it, it's you would think someone would hit that level at Amazon and they'll be done. Right. But that's that we're talking about. Like, that's the dawn of your, your career. And in that dawn of, of your career, where, where we are right now, as far as your story goes, you got kind of bored or you wanted to have like a side hustle <laughs> interjecting Redfin. Like, what the hell? Like. How the hell do you work at that level? Like, I mean, like Amazon is not to say like a mom and pop around the corner. You're working at the no. height of most people's careers. And then you said, I'm going to start something completely different, completely new, completely out the box. I want you to kind of talk about that story. Why the hell did you jump into the real estate software platform? Yeah, I mean, I say I, mean, you, I use the term egotistical already and cocky. And that those would be the two words I would uh, I would use to describe the answer to your question. Um, and uh I, I had made enough money that I was thinking about buying a house uh, in Seattle. And I had this experience where I just realized, holy smokes, this is a smoke and mirrors game where the real estate agents are tricking people into buying houses that they probably shouldn't buy because there's a disparity of information. There's an inequality of the amount of information the real estate agent has 
versus the customers. And that information is supposed to be public record. What, how, you know, what houses are for sale in what area? How much did these sell for? What's the liquidity of the area? All that information is registered with your county registrar, but it's just really hard to get. And so I actually went to uh, the, the county and I said, I want to get access to this data. And they gave me, after, I think it took a week, they gave me a CD-ROM. And again, dinosaur goggles here. Uh, CD-ROM is a, a little laser disc that had all of the sales data. And you had to know then how to load it up on your computer. You then had to read it in a, in a, like, in a very cryptic format. And then you could get access to this information. And I realized, holy, holy moly, if, if, if everybody had access to this and could understand it, can you imagine how that would change how people would buy real estate? And uh, I met these guys that were, were, had the same idea and they were doing it on, they built a Windows app, which you'd have to download and, 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 and it didn't have any distribution. Um, but they had this really neat idea to take that information and put it on the map so you could see all this information on a map. And we fell in love with each other and within a couple of weeks, we decided to build this as an internet uh, website and this is at the beginning of web 2.0 and this interactive websites no one had really built functional interactive websites maps that you use back then you'd click and you'd wait 20 seconds and a new map would appear so there wasn't this kind of concept of click and drag that just didn't exist at the time again massive dinosaur goggles and uh, and so we spent the next eight months building the first interactive map for the internet and we put all the real estate listings for Seattle on there, all of the historical sales for Seattle on there. And we would even draw the outline of the lots on this map. And it blew people's mind when we launched. We launched, I want to say, fall of 2004. Hmm. And just to kind of give you a sense of how novel this idea was, we launched and we're like, ah, oh, sweet. You know, here we go. We had 400,000 unique visitors on that website the day we launched. I mean, literally zero visitors beside us and our family the day before. 400,000 people came to the website the very first day. I went, you know, I, I was up till three o'clock in the morning, of course, and I, I worked late and we push go and I go to bed. And I get up in the morning at like 6.30 or 7. I've got three hours of sleep, groggy beyond all. I go to my coffee shop, I get my coffee, and I look around and I'm like, whoa, everybody's got their laptop, whatever, let me, let me drink my coffee. I drink my coffee, I walk over behind some people, and holy crap, everyone in the coffee shop, they've got redfin.com open on their web, on their browser, showing everybody, look at this, this is Bill Gates' house. Holy smoke, did you see how much he paid for this? Let me see how much my neighbor's house is so forth. And it was just all people spying on their neighbors, by the way. <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. Nobody bought any houses for the <laughs> First period of time, they were all just spying on their neighbors. But it was it opened my eye to this incredible experience of data that the data need to be in the hands of people. And when people are empowered, it creates all this opportunity. I mean, think about now you can go on to Zillow or Redfin now, and you can see what they think your house is worth. Mm -hmm. And they're smarter than than you know most of the real estate agents out there. And they have a really informed perspective of that's all based on data. They analyze what all the sales are in your neighborhood and they present that to you. That wasn't even an idea 20 years ago. And, and so that, that to me 
uh, again, kind of looking at it from a career perspective, that was one of the most magical moments for me because no one had ever seen anything like this before. And in fact, the, the headlines of a lot of the newspapers that wrote articles about it was like, have you ever seen this kind of fly by real estate experience? Nobody's ever seen anything like this before. And that actually became the inspiration for Google Maps and, and Apple Maps that we all now use every single day. It's just it's crazy. I'm just I'm hearing you tell this story and, and it's, it's so profound for the listener. Like, I, I really want you to kind of and I'm going to do a quick recap. Right. He started off with robotics and then he got into like research and development at Amazon. And then from there, he was like, oh, I'm bored. I'm just going to go ahead and create some real estate thing. He created Red <laughs> thing, right. Just out of nowhere. And then like the story progresses. And then people that know about like online, right, like online shopping, you, they may be familiar with Overstock. So that's like a next part of your adventure. Like how the hell do you go from selling coffee to being Amazon, being so profound, jumping into real estate. And then now you're at a, a retailer, online retailer, which essentially could be viewed as a competitor to Amazon. Yep. Yeah. So I, I only spent about a year at Overstock. Um, I went there as a favor to a friend to help out with a project mm -hmm. um, that turned into, uh, like I said, a whole year. And, uh, it, it was a, a really unique experience. Overstock's based in Salt Lake City, Utah, and uh, I'm, I'm not a member of the LDS Church. I'm not Mormon, and so it was a really, uh, it was a really weird experience for me socially. Uh, Salt Lake City, for those of you that haven't spent much time there, uh, has the opposite distribution of political views of every other city in America. Most cities in America have something like a bell curve, right? Where the you know whether you're Democratic or Republican, you're probably actually really close to your neighbors. Maybe you vote this way and this way, but you're you're generally kind of pretty close to each other. And Salt Lake City is what's what we call in statistics a bathtub distribution, meaning that the, the middle is actually almost vacuous; it's empty, and you have all these people that are very far right. That a lot of people know about. This is the the folks that are in the church, and they, and they follow the guidance of the church. And the interesting thing about Salt Lake City specifically, though, not the rest of Utah, is Salt Lake City also has this incredibly liberal chunk, but they're not near to each other. They're 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 they're, they're very very disparate. And I had my very first experience there. Um, I, I, I went to go again. I, I, I drove there with my, I think I had a Nissan Pathfinder at the time. I drove there with my Pathfinder and I parked it in this garage across from the, the church. And I went into a coffee shop, had coffee, came back. The garage was closed. It was six o'clock on a Saturday and they closed for Sunday services early which is understandable now that I understand kind of the dynamics of the church a little bit better. I did not understand them at this time. There wasn't a phone number to call. There was no way to get my car back. So I go to the guy next door who runs a tattoo shop. I walk in and I've got earrings. And so he could immediately identify like on this bathtub distribution that I didn't know existed in Salt Lake City. I am over here on the left side. Like this guy is not a member of the church. He's, he's this guy. And I go, hey, you know, I my car got stuck in the garage here. Do you know how to help me get out? And he goes, ah, oh, those those effing effing churchgoers. They shut the, the garage down. And I was like, whoa, no, 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 I'm not mad at anybody. Just want to get my car back. And I and I remember for the ensuing kind of nine months to a year I spent there. That was that was a pretty defining characteristic of the experience. Was 
there are people way over here and there are people way over here. And I, you know, I've always kind of prided myself of being somebody that can bring people together of differing views and, and can listen to, to all perspectives. And that was a really neat experience for me in the sense, you know, there's some career things that happened there, but I think the number one thing that happened for me personally at that moment in my career was really challenging my belief hmm. that I could listen to people who disagreed because I'd never been exposed to people that really disagreed so fundamentally. And um, I still think about that to this day. The number one thing that I, I, I take from that is that the ability to listen to someone with whom you vehemently agree wow. is really unique and really difficult and really precious. I think that's a solid segue because I mean we've been talking about all your successes and we're talking about like these these household names and these pedigrees right so like my next question is going into what you ended on that last note with it was like what in this journey so far and we're only still in the beginning of your journey right like what hurdles did you really have to overcome like when was that moment of okay I want to give up or this sucks did that ever happen in, in those first oh, couple years man. All the time, dude. I mean, that's that's the story. I mean, you, I, I'm sure you know that's the answer, right? I mean, like yeah. there are people where they glide through, right? And and things are, are awesome, uh, pretty much the whole way. Um, and I, I definitely was not one of those people. I can I can tell you that for sure. Um, I'm very self-critical, and so that that I'm sure doesn't help with that in terms of that that perspective. One of the stories I like to tell about failure and and turning failure into what I think failure is intended to be, which is a lesson to, to, to learn from um, is uh, the, the invention of Amazon advertising. And so uh, Amazon advertising is a 31 and a half billion dollar business unit at Amazon. So, I mean, framing that at <laughs> 31 and a half billion dollars a year, Amazon makes from Amazon advertising. And this is Amazon selling ads on their on the Amazon website. In 2000, uh, 2002 or 2003, I was running a, an experiment which used algorithms and data to determine what would be placed on the Amazon homepage. Mm -hmm. And uh, there had been a bunch of different experiments like this. Jeff Bezos was a huge believer in using algorithms to, to make these types of decisions and personalizing it. So every person got something unique on it. And, and we're again, we're at the very beginning of this trend of uh, the use of artificial intelligence for this at, at Amazon. And so I was doing some pretty fundamental research. We were testing what was called a Bayesian, uh, a Bayesian network to predict what people would want to buy. That was kind of the state of the art at the time. I was collaborating with a bunch of professors, uh, one of whom was down at like uh, Oregon State University. And he was kind of seen as the as the, the pinnacle in, in this area of Bayes nets. And, um, and that's just, a, that's just a, a esoteric term to mean you use probabilities and you chain probabilities together to try to figure out what someone wants to buy. And so we built this thing that we actually patented. It was an amazing engine that could do this type of math in real time. Every time you loaded the Amazon homepage, fast. And it would predict what is it that you want to you wanna view. You just watch TVs or look at TVs. Let me show you the, the, the best TV that you can buy for your money. You just looked at Harry Potter books. Let me show you the most recent release for Harry Potter books. Um, and we spent probably six months building this thing and we had sold it up the chain. I, I was going to stake my career on it because 
my team was an R&D team. We hadn't really shown any value yet. And I was going to show the executive staff, look, here's this thing that we built. We had a whole bunch of ideas. We built all this infrastructure. We built all these algorithms. Now we're making money for you. And so this wasn't a low stakes project. This was a the entire budget of my multi-million dollar a year cost team to the executive staff. This is how we're going to make money. And Bezos had bought into it and, you know, my entire kind of command chain was was waiting. We launched it. <clears throat> we looked at the first week of results and uh, my team came into my office and I, I still remember the, the team lead as uh, this guy named Pat and Pat was kind of wringing his hands. He goes, Mr. Selly, I am, I'm really sorry. I have really bad news. And, you know, as a, as a boss, right? Stomach, yeah. but steel faced. Cool. Tell me what the bad news is. Let's deal with it. This is going to be something we can handle. The system doesn't work. It sucks. All of our results are horrible. Like not, not even down a little bit. We were down astronomical amounts. Like it was, it was like 30% loss in revenue from the home page from this thing. It sucked. Everything about it sucked. And, uh, and again, I kind of staked my career on this thing. And so I, uh, I say, okay, well, can we, can we take a little look at the results? And sure enough, like everything sucked. And so I said, okay, let's do this. Let's absorb this piece of information. Let's all go home early today. We all, we worked super hard on this. We worked for six months, late nights. I mean, I, I, I sometimes had stand up meeting, meaning the entire staff meeting at 6 p.m. every day because half the staff would work till midnight every day. And then we would have a staff meeting at 9 a.m. to kick off the next day. That's how late we were working on this project for six months. It was a marathon effort. And so to have that kind of effort tank this hard, it needed it needed a step back. <clears throat> And obviously, I'm telling the story to you. So you guys already know this is like a Disney story, right? You already know the end of the story is okay. The, the characters all end up okay. I get kissed, and I wake up, and I turn into a princess, right? So, uh, sure enough, I uh, I wake up the next morning, and uh, I I still don't know what I'm going to do. And I, this is this is one of those moments. I think this may be the moment that you're that you're looking for here. I promised my team we were all going to go home and we were going to come back the next day with fresh minds. And I am expected to like show up uh -huh. with some better answer. And I don't have it. Uh -huh. So again, I do my routine. I get up, I go get my coffee. I was walking to the office at this time, which was awesome, by the way. Um, walking time. Amazing. Just cleared my head every day. And Seattle has six months out of the year that are the best weather of any city in the world. There's six, six months out of the year where their suicide rate is higher than a lot of other cities, which is not so positive. And I, I'm affected by season, seasonal affective disorder, which is why I don't live up there anymore. But um, it was one of those, you know, okay times. So it was good. I'm, I'm walking. It's beautiful. I'm clearing my head. I, uh, and so I at least come in not down. I come in with a plan. <clears throat> and my plan was... Let's look at this. Let's look at the data and let's let's take our time. Let's not jump to the conclusion. Let's look through this every line, every line, every line. And let's try to figure out if there's any insights, any light at the end of the tunnel. And so uh, 
I sit down with the team after an hour of just, uh, I think I brought food into, by the way, food helps. Um, uh, probably donuts, actually, if I if I recall correctly. And so not not a good suggestion, but uh, probably brought donuts in. We sat down, we spent an hour, we worked our way through it. And what we found was in all of this pile of trash, there was a golden nugget. Mm. And the golden nugget was that one of the pieces of content that we showed to a tiny fraction of the customers were these ads. And Amazon had this rogue Amazon team that would that would show Amazon credit card ads to a lot of Amazon customers. Or not to a lot, actually to a very, very small few because they did not have the support of the executive staff at the time. And that piece of content blew it out of the water. That piece of content had profitability that was, I wanna say like 10 to 20 times higher than any other piece of content. So if you just looked at a TV, and I could sell you a $2,000 TV pretty confidently, it was still better and more profitable for me to show you an ad. And so we ran another experiment and we tested that just to see if that hypothesis was right. And holy smokes, it was super right. For certain chunks of customers that we could identify using this Bayesian network approach, uh-huh. we could find content that was way more profitable. It just wasn't doing what we thought it was going to be. It wasn't selling you a TV. It wasn't selling you Harry Potter. It wasn't telling you about Amazon's new clothing line. It wasn't selling you DVDs and CDs and music and stuff like that. It was showing you an ad. And so I presented that to, to Jeff Bezos and he hated it. He thought it was the worst idea ever. But when I showed him the data and I told him the story of how this was entirely based on experiments and the data supported it, he said, run with it. And now fast forward almost 20 years, it's $31.5 billion of revenue for them. I mean, just just, just hearing you tell that story, I, I hope, I hope that is mailing you a Christmas card every single year just saying thank you. Because <laughs> obviously you're talking about a third of the revenue share coming in from just like the ad spend, which is utterly damn remarkable, yeah, right? It's huge. It's massive. It's massive. So um, going into like, I mean, I'm listening to your story and, and, I, and I want to kind of continue adding these these puzzle pieces together. And I want to jump back into the beginning. Right. So as a kid, right, you kind of grew up in the middle of nowhere, but you understand mm-hmm. technology, but you have a hell of an entrepreneurial insight and hustle. Does that come from any parent or guardian that you can remember growing up as a child? Absolutely not. Um, and and this is one of the things I talk to my folks about. I I. I love being an adult able to have conversations with my parents because the ability to like ask that type of a question, like, where did this come from? What, what happened? How did you feed this? What I have kids now, how should I help feed my kids passions that are different than my own? How do I do that in a way that I can still inspire them by what I do, but not stifle them. And my parents were, you know, every parent sucks at something, right? You, we all know that. But they did some stuff that was really remarkable given their background. Um, they come from a hyper career conservative backdrop. My dad's family had immigrated from Austria during World War II, just in time. My, my, my dad's family and, and my family were Jewish. So, you know, leaving Austria just at the beginning of World War II was a, a life saving decision for them. <laughs> And then they became doctors. And that was kind of the traditional immigration, get an education, become a doctor or a lawyer, save your money, don't get credit cards, and then buy a house. Like that's, there you go. That that there was a 
a cookie cutter blueprint. You followed that, you gave that to your kids and then your kids would be happy. <clears throat> My mom's family, very similar. Chinese immigrants, um, they were uh, landowners and, 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 and nobles in China, but then very, very poor when they came to America. You know, I, I'm gonna tell you they had a laundromat and you're gonna say, oh, okay, right, right. They did, they had a restaurant, yep. Uh, we had a store in Chinatown in Philadelphia. My great grandmother ran that store until she was 98 years old and until like three months before she died. I mean, that that is my family. That is what I grew up in. The opposite of like take big risks and be an entrepreneur. But there was an element of entrepreneurial support from, from the Chinese side. Um, and so I think that's where it came from was that uh -huh. my parents were very conservative. They never took any risks with their money, but I wanted to. I, I, I grew up being a risk taker and being excited about doing stuff that broke the rules. And I mean, the first the first thing I just talked to my parents about this like two weeks ago that really showed how much I broke the rules. I stopped going to school uh, in high school uh, before noon, my sophomore year. As soon as I could drive, I just stopped going to school in the mornings and I would skip my first three periods pretty much every day. And I, I asked my parents, like, you are such bad parents. How did you let me do this? And they said, well, you know, your teachers seem to be okay with it. Because I talked to my teachers and I made sure I did all my homework and I made sure that I understood the, the concepts that they were teaching. I just didn't want to be in school. Wow. And my teachers were really amazingly supportive of this too. I, I mean, this is one of those things where growing up in a small town, I think really played into my favor because they cared about me. They knew me by name. They knew that whatever they saw something in me that I didn't see at the time. And they let me get away with this stuff that I don't know that I would say it was good, but it, it fueled my passion for breaking rules and doing good stuff by breaking rules. Cause I like, for example, one of my first periods was physics and I would skip physics every day. But then I would read about advanced physics and I would come back to the physics teacher after school and talk to him about the theory of relativity and the theory, quantum theory, and, and try to understand the actual underlying concepts. And so he, uh, his name was Todd Rohr, was the teacher. I still remember his name. And he would, he was baffled by me. He didn't get it. And he, but he supported it. And he said, you know, as long as you show up and talk about stuff and you're really learning it, I guess, I guess it's okay that you skip and I won't mark you absent anymore. Um, but please don't tell anyone that I'm doing this. And I just made that deal with all of my teachers and I, I, I got away with, with again, breaking the rules and, and achieving a new plane of performance by breaking the rules, which, you know, as a parent, my gosh, I don't know that I want to encourage anybody to tell their kids to do that necessarily. Um, but somehow my parents were okay with that. And they, they learned to live with this crazy risk-taking son that was fundamentally different than them. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, on the flip side of that, I mean, you alluded to, obviously, you're, you're a parent now, right? So how are you managing and juggling all the things that you, I mean, obviously, with your career. Very poorly. <laughs> well, let's talk about that then. I mean, you're saying poorly, but how do you view it as being poor? Oh, dude, I try so hard. I don't know. I, I don't know. If you ask them on some days, I'm sure they'd say I'm a good dad. And on some days, they'd say I'm the worst. Um, I will tell you this though, uh, I make time for being a parent. And, and I think that's one of the most important things. And I prioritize being a parent and I listen. Those are probably the three things that I think I do well. 
Now, if the output of that is good or bad, my God, any parent would tell you, I don't know if, if I'm doing a good job or not. But, you know, those three things, time, priority, mm-hmm. and listening. And so, like, for example, my older daughter, she's a drama kid. She's, um, again, as 180 for me as you could be. She sits in her room and she draws. I, I, I suck at drawing in every possible way. And she draws for hours every single day. She's so creative. She's had the ability to draw and think of designs and, and think outside the box and present characters that you would never imagine at a level of depth that, that has always been incredible. She's a performer. She dances. She sings. She, and that all those things I suck at. And so, again, time, priority, and listening. Um, I try to listen to what's important to her. I try to understand the things she likes Sims. And I, I did listen to her describe those characters. She listens to audiobooks. She has probably 30 books that she listens to. She has eye problems. And so she can't actually read very well. Um, but she listens to an entire novel every three days. Huh. And she consumes on average three to five new novels every single month and loves the characters. She could tell you backstories that she's made up for all of the different characters that she listens to. So I listen to that. Then I prioritize. I make sure that when we do our budget every month, we have enough budget due to, I, I would not doubt if at the age of 13, she is Audible's number one customer in history. I'm not even kidding. Like it is astronomical how much money she spends on Audible. Wow. And I prioritize it and that's okay because that is the thing that, that drives her brain. So, so I listen to what's important to her. I prioritize it as it relates to time and as it relates to money and as it relates to listening and as it relates to supporting her and letting her room look like crazy, crazy, crazy. Uh, and then I spend time with her. I sit in, on her bed where she feels comfortable when I listen to her. So I don't know if I'm a, a great parent, but I think those are the three things I think about. The other one that I think about too, which you alluded to, is I work. Um, I, I'm very fortunate in my career that I've made enough money that I could kind of bounce around and, and probably not in California because um, gas is almost $40 a gallon here. Um, I, I literally can't fill up my truck, by the way, just just for the record. You know, like credit card companies stop your, your gas fill up at like 150 bucks. I have an F-350. And it costs $250 to fill up my truck now. But anyway, so I, I probably, I, I couldn't live here without working. But I could, you know, I could live almost anywhere else in the United States without working for the rest of my life. But teaching your kids the importance of work. I wake up every morning at 6 o'clock. I'm working when they wake up. I'm working when they get home from school. I'm working when they get home. But I also make time for them. I have dinner with them every single night. And I've done that for the last 10 years. Wow. And finding that kind of rigorous definition of priority and the importance of work. I think that's also another important thing that I try to model for them. Wow. Wow. This is like, I mean, you're talking about your, your daughter being a, a voracious reader, right? And I think, and I don't know what, what your answer is going to be as far as like your reading regimen, but I mean, obviously you've dibbled and dabbled in so many different spectrums of expertises to where are you getting this information through reading? Or are you getting this information through like osmosis? Like, let's talk about that for a minute here. Like what books are you reading? Wow. So I'll tell you, you know, again, another unique moment in my career, um, my freshman year at Stanford, I, again, I came from a small place. I thought I was pretty, pretty smart. 
I had won regional math, number one, in the entire Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, um, numerous years in a row. So I, I was like, I was pretty full of myself when I got to Stanford and I got humbled quick, like, and, you know, there were kids that had already taken three years of calculus. And so I was really good at the basics, but I hadn't had the exposure that a lot of, you know, the kids that went to Palo Alto high school had had three years of calculus. My high school only offered one. You couldn't have three years if you were the smartest person in the world and you went to that high school. It just wasn't, it wasn't there. And, and so one of the classes I took my very first year at Stanford was speed reading. Hmm. And if there's one class at, at school that I could point to and say that just fundamentally changed the shape of my arc, it was speed reading. It wasn't my calculus class. It wasn't my physics class. It wasn't my computer science class. I'd already taken three years of Stanford computer science by the time I got into school. Um, so my computer science classes were, were fun, but like I'd already done most of that coursework, the theoretical side at least. And the um, and that was another thing my parents did awesome was they supported me doing that. They sent me off to college level courses starting in high school um, and, and the end of middle school. And so I was really lucky with that. But I took speed reading. And what speed reading taught me was that consuming information is not about consuming all of it. It's about finding information in the data. I mean, if you look at a news article, how much of that information is really important? And the teacher, I remember this, the very first day the teacher crushed us. Said, okay, here I am. I'm your professor today. I actually got a degree from a liberal arts school out in the Midwest, you're probably smarter than I am because you all got in Stanford. I didn't get to Stanford and we all laughed, ha ha. But we all thought, yep, we're smarter than you. And uh, and this guy is like, okay, here's a newspaper article, read it. And then answer questions for me. And we all did that and we, ah, we all got them right. Ha 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 ha, right, we're, we're so smart. And uh, <laughs> I remember this, right? So he, uh, he then says, okay, here's a longer article. You have 30 seconds, everyone read it. Oh. We all failed. Like, <clears throat> I haven't read this article either. Ask me any questions from the article. We all ask. Got every single one right on a full page article. Why? Because he knew where to look for the information. He had read the entire article in 30 seconds because he read in depth the first paragraph. He then read at depth the last paragraph. That was the next thing he read. He went straight from the first paragraph to the last paragraph. So he knew the preamble and the argument. And then he knew the conclusion. And then he read the first line of every paragraph of the story. So then he knew the arc of the trajectory. Mm. That's pretty much all the information. You need. If you have 30 seconds to read something, that's a pretty darn good way to do it. And so you'll see behind me, I have a stack of books and stuff like that. I've read every single one of these books, but a lot of them I've only read for five minutes. Huh. I've read the entire book in five minutes by using that methodology that he taught me, which is that you have to relax your brain for just a moment and, and convince yourself that if I read differently, I can actually consume almost all of this information, but not ever absorb all of the data. And the difference between information and data is really fundamental there that that again, a lot of these books, I have only read for five minutes, but I've read them cover to cover. I read the first uh, paragraph or a couple paragraphs of the first chapter. So I've read the entire introduction, most likely. 
I have read the first sentence of every chapter. I've probably read the first paragraph of every chapter. I've probably read the last paragraph of every chapter. And I've probably read point sentences that align with the arguments that were introduced in the first paragraph or the last paragraph of every chapter. And, and that's, again, as ridiculous as that may seem, it's less about like what one book or one thing have you read that, that really changed you. Um, for me, it's the way I read that I find is really unique. And, and I tell people this sometimes that, you know, my employees are people that I'm mentoring and they're always blown away because the question is like, what should I read? And, and my answer is, I think that's a very hard question and everyone's going to give you a different answer. What you need to be able to do is to read everything quickly. Damn. Like, I mean, that's, a, that's like a mic drop moment. Like we can end the podcast right here, just move on. That's it. That was the final takeaway, everyone. But I mean, in reality, like, I mean, just, just hearing that, that, that information, it's, it's, it's phenomenal, right? I mean, you've pretty much of seamlessly told us a systematical way to read data really quickly to get an overview and take away the key takeaways without having to read all the insight information between the lines, which is fucking phenomenal. I'm sitting here like trying to pick up my jaw off the damn floor. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I appreciate it, man. I, I, I mean, I, I can remember, I'll give, I'll give another, just a visual yeah. example for people. One of the other things this teacher did and, and, and I, I shoot, I should remember his name. I feel horrible for not remembering his name because I remember the way he looks and everything he did. This one day he had us come in and we, oh, he had us bring a, a piece of construction paper. We're like, you're such an idiot. We're in college. We don't have construction paper. Bring a piece of construction paper. So we brought in a piece of construction paper and he had us cut out a hole that was half an inch by half an inch. And he said, I want you to be able to read an article. This is probably like the third week or fourth week. So we were, we were already kind of like impressed by the guy. Like we'd, he'd already proven that he was smarter than us in this, in this realm. And he had us read an entire article through this entire half inch by half inch hole. And again, once again, we, the smart Stanford kids thought we were going to be able to do this because he'd already taught us a couple of his tricks and he was able to do it very, very differently again, because it was so precise about the way that he, the way that you move it. How do your eyes move across an article? Do they move side to side? Do they move top to bottom? And what he taught us to do is also to control the way our eyes move when we read. He taught us that on average, the, the average person does this bounce, 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 bounce. I mean, I'm sure like if you think about the way you read, there's something about that you bounce from one word to the next and you, and you hesitate. So the first thing he taught us was how to move left to right without hesitating. And he just made us move this paper left. Don't move. Don't, don't slow it down. You don't, you can't stop it. You just need to keep going. Never stop, never stop, never stop. And, and after about two weeks, three weeks of doing that, Forcing yourself not to let your eyes stop, you're able to do it. Holy crap. Holy crap. I'm reading three times faster. Line, word, word for word, I'm reading three times faster. I haven't even changed my consumption. The next thing he taught us was he took that same piece of paper and it's, we're not allowed to move side to side at all. Top to bottom. Top to bottom. Top to You can't move side, no side to side move. Top to bottom. Top to bottom. And we did that for weeks. I mean, you, you can imagine these kids are taking like super esoteric classes and, and, and on hypothetical theoretical physics. And then you have a guy <laughs> move your paper top to bottom every day for three weeks. But man, it is life changing the way you consume information. So it's crazy. So that I mean that that leads me into like like your current path of where you are right now with, with, with Deep Sentinel, right? So I, I, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do a hypotenuse, right? And and I want you to kind of to take this at, at face value, just with me outside looking in, right? 
you're into home security, right? And, and again, you started off, you had a real estate side, mm -hmm. a real estate aspect. So through that data, obviously you can kind of see where you can plug in security. Yeah. Then we fast forward to about roughly 2016 is when you started the founding of that company. And shortly thereafter, two years, then <laughs> Amazon buys out Ring, right? Which is essentially in the same spectrum as space. So like, I want you to talk about that journey. Like collectively, you've collected all this data. You've created systems to collect data so you can kind of see data. And obviously you're reading 10 times faster than the average human being can. <laughs> like, how did you kind of like finalize to where you are right now with such a dynamic hardware that is essentially attached to a system to where people are li watching live and then they're saying, hey, leave my box. Stop stealing my shit. Stop where you are right now. Like, I want I want you to kind of like depict that, because, again, for the average person, like hearing this is like, what the hell? How the hell? I can't keep up. But you're there. So let's talk. Yeah, about so, so, so Deep Sentinel, like, I'll, I'll do the 30 seconds on Deep Sentinel. What Deep Sentinel is, is if you imagine your Nest or your Ring cams, your Arlo's attached to a super hyper intelligent computer that has an AI that can tell when there's a problem, mm -hmm. that AI then tells a guard in real time within seconds that they need to be intervening and talking over your two-way audio and the guards do it. So, so everything that you kind of envisioned you would be doing when you bought your nest or your ring and you realize until you realize that you're just overwhelmed by the alerts and you turn them off, everything that you initially imagined, we make that happen. We, we have built the entire system end to end so that our guards are able to prevent crimes. And, and the, the reason I did this is one, <clears throat> it uses AI, right? So at the heart of how we do this is we built a really unique machine learning, artificial intelligence, that in real time looks at every single video feed and it's able to analyze within microseconds whether you are uh, doing something suspicious or not. And that's that's number one. And that makes it so that we can do this in a cost affordable way because as you would probably guess, having guards watch your property, whether it's your business or your home, is astronomically expensive. It starts at like $10,000 a month. That's the starting point, right? That's like if you walked into a car dealership and they're like, yeah, so our cheapest one's 120,000 bucks, but that's just for the first year, huh. right? I mean, just bam, the cost of an average house within two years. And so, um, so, so that's number one is, is it uses this AI to make it accessible. Now it's, it's not cheap, right? Deep Sentinel is more expensive than a ring or a nest, but it is way less expensive than having a guard watch your property all the time. Number two, uh, and this is really kind of the process of how I got here, is that it's important. Um, I, again, if you, <clears throat> for your listeners that are watching the video feed here, you'll see that, that I've got a bunch of books behind me. About a quarter of these are on parenting. And, you know, while I say I'm, 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 I'm failing miserably, I try really hard. <laughs> you know, I, I read a lot about parenting. And one of the most important things I've learned about parenting is that that creating a sense of safety huh. is game changing long term. Um, I've seen that in the positive sense, and I've seen that in the negative sense. And and I have my my, my wife and I work with two foster kids, and we have for the last uh, fifteen years, twenty years, and we see what the lack of safety that they felt in their childhood, how that affects them even to this day, and and doesn't let them go. It doesn't allow them to feel safe and, and experiment. It doesn't allow them to love 
in the way that a lot of the rest of us are able to feel love and it and it changes that and and as much love and as much support as i provide them you can never make up for that that missing moment those those traumatic moments for them early in their lives and then with my kids i see <clears throat> and hopefully in a positive sense that when i do create safety for them they are able to branch out they're able to take risks they're able to learn on their own in a way that i lessons that i couldn't teach them lessons that they can only learn from their own failures and their own expressions um and and so safety is a fundamental building block to me not only of a family but then of a society of a city of a community of a country and it's i think one of the key missing ingredients i think in america right now that we we are as a culture, not sure what the role is of our law enforcement. We as a culture, individuals I'm sure are very confident in their view of what law enforcement is. But I think we disagree. Like we as a, as a country don't have a common understanding of that. We don't have a common understanding of how we talk about politics. We don't have a common understanding of how, how we talk about money. And having a place of safety allows us to have some of those dialogues that are, that are important. Some of those dialogues that are uncomfortable. And the more safe someone is, the, the better able they are to engage in the ideas of someone else with whom they vehemently disagree. And again, kind of going back to this Salt Lake City experience, I was only able to listen to people on both sides because I felt safe in myself. I didn't feel threatened by people that presented it, a very conservative agenda presented by the LDS church. I accepted it and I, and I believe it and I support it and I believe that they believe it. I believe that they're good people. And I wasn't threatened by the people that had tattoos and, and, and smoked cigarettes and drank coffee at ninth and ninth in Salt Lake City in the, in, in the district where all the liberal people were. Mm -hmm. And that safety to me is so fundamental. So deep set, we believe that everyone deserves to be safe. And we found a way to give that to people that they'd never seen before. So we have customers every single day at Deep Sentinel, and this is why I do it, that email me and say, I slept last night for the first time feeling safe. Can you, can you understand how important that is to me, how important that is to my wife, how important that is to my family? And even if that's because I've made their business more safe, that trickles into your family because you're staying up all night worried about, are people stealing the electrical cable out of my trucks? That's my livelihood. That's how I pay for my kids to go to school. That's how I pay for our food. Are people stealing the catalytic converters out of all my cars? Are people stealing the RVs off my RV lot? Are people stealing my employees' cars? Are homeless people uh, uh, vandalizing my storefront and breaking in my front door? Are they just terrorizing my employees? So my employees are all quitting, and then I have to hire new employees, and I or I have to show up and open every day and close every day. Those are all things that create stresses for people that that we don't need, and they're all preventable. <laughs> um, but what we realized it at, at, at Deep Sentinel was that no one else was providing that safety. We were preventing maybe a false sense of security because I have cameras. Oh, look, there's a video of somebody stealing my catalytic converter. What are you going to do with that? Huh. You're going to feel bad for yourself. Maybe you're proud you have this video for a second, but then you still don't have a catalytic converter and they still come back and steal it again next week. And, and changing that equation, that's why we do what we do. And, and again, it builds off the technology background that I have, but I decided when I started this company, my wife and I sat down with the kids and we decided that whatever I did next, we wanted 
it to be our legacy as a family. We wanted it to be our contribution that had a bigger impact on society. You know, as, as proud as I am of everything else I've done, I wanted to do something that I felt really, really good about modeling for my kids, not just hard work, but that if you do hard work, you can, you can really influence the lives of people around you. Yeah, I think oh. I think that that's that's phenomenal. And, and to 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 back that up too, I mean, doing my due diligence, I watched some of the like the YouTube videos, and it was one video that stood out to me that was like really cool and really awesome. It was like a lady got out of her car, and the security people were like, "Hey, can we help you with something?" And she was like, "Hey, I just want to read you a thank you card for Christmas." And she yeah. opened the camera, and she's like, the "Security <laughs> guard's like, well, well, could you read it to me?" And she's like, "You know, thank you for protecting me." And it goes back to what you're saying. So I mean, obviously, not only are you doing it, but uh, you're spreading that information through a hardware device which is kind of phenomenal you're building a whole community of safety through hardware which is something that people don't resonate with and i think it kind of goes back to you having such a profound connection with robotics in the early days to where you bring it forward now and you're putting the human condition on top of it which again most people there's a disconnect between both sides of the coin and you have have that synergy which I and it's like you were in our office five years ago when we were building that that first version of the software we would talk about how can we create a an emotional connection to a piece of hardware and it's really hard to do that it's really 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 hard to do that like even people say like i love this thing for a little while but then it, it becomes very transactional and we wanted it to not be transactional we wanted it to be truly an emotional connection to something that meant this is a part of my life it's a part of my livelihood and so when we designed our hardware, one of the things that we put on it, uh, I'll hold it up for the people that are watching, but we had this red ring at the top of our camera. So our camera has two rings on it, which, which kind of signifies it's got two things going on. It has audio and video and it talks to you. And so we made this to look kind of like an eye and it has a red ring that spins around it to tell you that there's someone watching. And that's exactly what we do. So when you, when you have what in, in hardware world, we have this thing called an out of box experience where what is your first five minutes like? Because that's going to set the platform for what are your expectations for this thing for the rest of its life. And so part of our out-of-box experience is that you, you put the battery into our camera, you hang it up and on your door, and then the red ring comes on. And then you wave to it. And when you wave to it, it says, hi, this is Victoria at Deep Sentinel. I just wanted to say thank you for being our customer and trusting us with your safety. Uh, is there something I can do to help you right now? And that for everyone else, when every other device you've ever installed, you get on your phone and you're kind of looking at your phone and that's your out-of-box experience. Ours, the key thing was I want you to look up. I want you to look up from your phone and that physical motion and then that interaction is what differentiates the whole experience. Was instead of it being here, crunched over, looking at your phone. I want you to open up. I want you to look up. And I don't know, maybe this is like an over-exaggeration, but kind of like the the voice of God kind of coming down, just a different, a different thing. And and, and for the religious listeners, please, like, I don't mean that in the, in in a a, a dispassion, but but that kind of like out of body experience where you're reaching out beyond your home. That was what we wanted to create. And every one of our customers has that experience that you're saying that this is different. There's something about this that is not like anything else that I've ever interacted with. Wow. 
I mean, with that, I mean, let's just talk about final words of wisdom, right? So I think your journey kind of talks to multiple different people, right? You're talking to potential customers that are looking for that level of security. You're talking to that young kid <clears throat> in the Midwest that's into robotics and is trying to figure things out. And you're also talking to that highly effective, highly motivated VP or executive team leader right now. What words of insight would you give to them when they're hitting these hurdles, how to push forward and continue on their journeys? Yeah, so man, um, if there's one thing that I like to to when well, you gotta boil the whole set of a career into one thing, uh, one of the things we didn't talk about were all my missed opportunities. Right, I had an opportunity to join Sean Parker as the first VP slash president of Facebook. Mm-hmm. Right, period, full stop, bam talking billions of dollars I left on the table. Um, and so there's a, a way to look back on your life and on your career that's full of regret. And the reason I look at those moments and I have very little if, if no, no regret looking at my life and my career is because the one thing that I did that I, I really credit my parents with and I love having learned from them is that every one of those big decisions I made, I made with my heart. And I made a couple where I didn't. I made a couple where I tried to follow money or I tried to follow career. And those are the ones that I regret. Um, and, And I don't now, having the benefit of years between me and those decisions, I don't regret them in the grand sense because I learned the lesson that you shouldn't follow path for title. You shouldn't follow path for money, I don't think. Now, if you can't eat, One of the things about the Jewish religion they taught us very early on was if you can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't breathe, you always listen to those. And so I know there's people in that situation, but, but speaking, once you're past that, once you're at the point where you can, you have this flexibility to make decisions and listen to your heart and, and you can choose between making $300,000 a year and doing something you hate and making 200 or making 200 and, 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 and doing something that you love and making a million dollars a year because those opportunities are out there right? Like those are out there. Every single time that I listened to my heart mm-hmm. and I did what was important to me, important to my family. I don't want to live every day. Like I'm dying. I don't think that's a healthy perspective, but if I live every day and I ask myself, if I were to die tomorrow, would this be the decision that I wanted to make? That I think is a healthy perspective. And that is a, a perspective that I, I have very, 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 very few regrets. And, and even with, with X amount of money or Y amount of money, I, I love every moment of my life and I love every decision that I've made. And I feel like I've learned and I've grown and I've grown closer with my wife. I've grown closer with my family. I have connection with all of my staff and my company. We have very low employee churn because we aspire to connect with each other at those, the level of the things that matter to us because we are all doing something that matters to us. And I think that, that is, you know, if you can, if you can stay true to that from beginning to end of your career as much as possible, um, whether you end up here or here, I think you're going to end up at the right place. That's, that's a, a profound statement. And it, it, it kind of makes me, um, 
like I'm just gonna jump the gun with like my next next question is as usually is a bonus question, but with you ending with that such a profound statement, my next question is if you could spend twenty four hours with anyone dead or alive, uninterrupted for those twenty four hours, who would it be and why? My grandma. And, and the reason I say that is because I missed a couple of opportunities. I was really career focused when she passed away and I missed a couple of opportunities to go hang out with her a couple, couple more times. And so by the time I told her about my wife and that we were going to get married, she was in a coma wow. and, uh, you know, gosh, that's such a personal answer though. I, I, but it is true. Um, she's the one person that I, I could have gone to visit one more time and I didn't. And she's so different from me. I had a lot to learn from her. She's so different. She's all artsy and flowers. <laughs> and She wore a bonnet to church every day. And this is my mom's mother. And she would call us and tell us how the pastor said how pretty she looked. And that was just, that was her life. She loved that. And, and it's, again, it's the opposite of me. I've got Star Wars stuff on the wall behind me and computer science and AI books, but I loved it, you know, and I, I wish I would have gotten 24 more hours with her. The last time I spent real time with her, I took her out on the, on the Rogue River in Grants Pass, Oregon. And we went on the jet boats there and she had such a blast. And we took a, we took a couple pictures together, and she she's the one person that I you know, and I, and I have other relatives too, but she's the one that I was kind of the closest to that I didn't get that last day with. Wow, wow. I think based upon like the stories you was telling, and earlier on you was talking about your daughter and her creativity, it sounds like you have somewhat of a reincarnation of your grandmother living with you growing up. <laughs> that, you know what? That's a neat perspective. I never thought of that. I will, uh, I will think about it that way. I think going forward. Um, yeah, she's, she's awesome. She, she challenges me every single day. Uh, when I wake up, that was a little bit, I don't, I don't think you're probably looking for more of a career answer, but that's my honest answer. Yeah. I mean, I, I think your transparency is, is a breath of fresh air. So, I mean, I think your answer was the answer that we needed to hear. Definitely. Um, and I think you brought up star Wars, so kind of this closing out with like a more bonus, funny side of things. It's, if you could decide who would win in a chess match between Yoda, Professor X, and Tony Starks, who do you think will win and why? Yeah. So I'm tempted to say Yoda, right? Because I think he's he's got everything it takes. But I actually think Yoda would actually play the chess match as a larger strategy to create trust with the people. He would lose intentionally, not in a way that was obvious to anybody else. So that other people would get, give him information. That's his entire kind of feng shui with the universe is that he's very comfortable. He was very comfortable dying because his death was a part of a bigger, bigger journey. So that, that, that'd be the most um, kind of direct response there. Uh, and then uh, the person that I would want to win would be Tony. Because I think of Deep Sentinel, Tony is the model of Deep Sentinel. Mm -hmm. Deep Sentinel, we have a statue of Iron Man in our office. We have a six foot tall statue of Iron Man. When you walk in, the first thing you see is the hand like jewel pointed at you. 
because Tony Stark embodies who we want to be. We want to be funny and personable and, and approachable and human. And uh, at the same time, we want to be intelligent and driven by technology. Uh, and then the third thing is that we're the best of both of those worlds. And that's what Iron Man really was, right, to me. And um, and so I think that, that that combination of computer and human, uh, Jarvis and Tony together, that's, uh, that's who I would aspire to be. And that's who I think would win the match. Wow. Wow. It's phenomenal, phenomenal. I mean, I, I definitely uh, appreciate everything that, that you brought to the table today. It's um, one of those things that's eye opening, is refreshing, is insightful. So going into closing, you know, uh, I think we're over time. But if you want to, we can kind of just push it a little bit longer. It, I'm giving you the microphone. You're the host of Boston Cage. In this journey, in this conversation, are there any questions that you would like to ask me? Oh man. Um... Well, I mean, look, I, I opened up a lot. In terms of my my life, um, I gave a lot of perspective there. Benchmark me against your other guests. Tell me the things that you thought I I did incredibly well, and the things you think I did incredibly poorly, or things that you think I would benefit from, given the experience of all the thousands of other people you've interviewed. Uh, what's what's something I could learn about? Oh man, it's it's, it's just so interesting hearing you speak and, and and obviously listening to your career path and to your point i've interviewed hundreds of people at this point in time so it's kind of hard for me to kind of put a, a direct comparison between you and anyone else i mean i've dealt with multi-millionaires and i've seen their great opportunities but i think as of right now in this podcast i would think your delivery and your profound history is kind of unmatched at this point to be honest with you what can i learn though tell, tell me what 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 is a topic that you've talked about with another boss that you think Gosh, this sounds like something that, that Sally would find super interesting and exciting and and an opportunity to to grow. I think our off your conversation beforehand was just talking about like NFTs to, to a certain extent. So I think in, with your knowledge and your know-how, have you touched into that space? I mean, obviously understanding analytical data, understanding AI, understanding robotics, going into NFT is a whole nother platform, a whole nother world. The metaverse is uniquely different. So have you jumped into that space? Do you, I mean, I know you understand it, but are you eventually planning on diving into that space? I am learning about it right now. I have uh, one investment in this space and I have a friend who's a developer for NFTs and I am literally like wrapping my brain about it, around it right now. I had dinner with some friends two nights ago one of whom's invested really heavily in NFTs and the other one is a complete disbeliever. And we had a long, like two hour conversation about this. Uh, it's, it's, I think I'll, I'll tell you my view on, on NFTs and what I'm trying to figure out, which is how do we make this a non luxury thing? How do we make this something where it's not Gwyneth Paltrow buying it, but it's you and me trading baseball cards. Mm -hmm. Um, on the street corner or at, at on the bus on the I guess I don't even know if kids ride buses to school anymore but on the bus on the way to school right and that or I, I, again I don't know how old you are exactly but like for me it was garbage fail kids and uh, and then magic cards in high school and how do we make it more like that where there are 10 cent cards and there are five cent cards and there are one cent and then there's trash cards and right now nfts are all five thousand ten thousand fifty thousand dollars i mean who really wants to spend five thousand dollars on a digital thing that could go away tomorrow and has no tangible value mm. 
who has that liquid cash to do that? It's truly a luxury couture product. And is there a way to make that something you and I can just hang out and, and, and riff on? And, and, I, and I think I think I definitely definitely agree with you in that space, that spectrum. But I think your background and, and having that analytical data, like that insight, like you like you said earlier on, you figured out like 90 percent of what you was doing essentially with Amazon in the beginning completely failed. But you found that one little puzzle piece and that <laughs> one little puzzle yeah. piece grew and that it grew into a 31 billion dollar industry. Right. So like what in the NFT space based upon what you know? And I think like, you know, that's the next adventure. Right. How do you bridge these two things together? You have the insight. You, you have the data you have the know-how but to the general public they still don't even know what the hell nft is or even how to download mm -hmm. nft or how to purchase the nft what could you do in that space to kind of help that transition i will i will think on that question i will think on that question it, it's been awesome uh, getting to, to to know you and, and answer all your questions man I, I i've enjoyed this a lot yeah, yeah. Like, likewise, for sure, man. And again, I don't want to suck up any more of your time. Like I said earlier on, I think you and I could probably talk talk on and on for two, three hours, end up being like a, a Joe Rogan experiment. But, you know, <laughs> I think it's, it's a good way to segue out at this point. I mean, again, I appreciate your time. I mean, you, your busy schedule, everything that you're doing. And, and again, you're not just developing and creating, you're also giving back to humanity to another level to where I think once people realize that and they start to come to fruition with it, by all means, they'll be thanking you for sure. I, man, I, I would love that. That's what we're trying to do. I mean, it, it, and it's what drives us. The the woman that you mentioned that, that holds up the Christmas card, that's what I think about all the time. We have customers that do that every, every couple of days and it's what drives me. It, it's a huge motivator. Wow. Wow. Well, this is the final note, Dave, also known as the founder boss. I appreciate everything you brought to the table today, man. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762-233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss and Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook. Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.